So the game is rigged. Absolutely the game is rigged. I'm Matt O'Leary, and you're listening to the Influence Hacker Podcast. This podcast is an unlikely collaboration between John Lenker and Kevin Delaplante, two marketing experts, and myself, a high school counselor with almost no pre-existing knowledge of the marketing field. Our purpose is to empower everyday consumers, such as myself, to be more critically minded and discerning while educating marketers to be more ethical and effective as they strive to influence consumers. We affectionately call this process influence hacking. In this episode, we'll gain revealing insight from a thought leader in the food industry into the nature of the hack. And more specifically, we'll dive into three interrelated questions that make up three acts of the episode, if you will. Number one, why do big companies lie? Number two, what's the difference between marketing and propaganda? And number three, who can we really trust? Who's the keeper of the truth? We are honored to interview pediatric endocrinologist, professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, and author of over 200 scientific articles and reviews, Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig is a whistleblower. He's a a canary in a coal mine who bemoans the 80% of grocery store items with added sugar. He believes that diabetes, heart disease, strokes, and other metabolic diseases are driven by just that, excess sugar, which overloads the liver, forcing the pancreas to release insulin, which in turn stores that incoming sugar as fat, And yeah, even with artificial sweeteners, which trick the body to set off the same process. Sorry, Diet Coke. Dr. Lustig is featured quite prominently in the Amazon Prime documentary Fed Up, which makes a compelling case against Big Sugar. He's one of those guys in a suit they cut to to give their claims some more authority, you know, mahogany bookshelves, the whole bit. So why do big companies lie? In our first episode, John suggested that a public lie starts with a personal lie. That is, we first lie to ourselves. That's kind of a a philosophical, a psychological angle, you know, something I, I can imagine could be gleaned from a great novelist like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. Dr. Robert Lustig, however, speaks to something less abstract and more grounded in the here and the now, laying the legal foundation, or lack thereof, on which deception in corporate America thrives. In our interview, Kevin cut right to the chase. Well, Robert, you actually took time off from your career life to go back and study law. It's a master's in studies in law. It's an MSL. So I read that as... uh, trying to equip yourself to enter into and become influential within the policy realm, right? Basically, I I went to law school to learn two things. The first thing was, when does a personal health issue become a public health crisis? And what are the legal doctrines that either support or uh, detract from that? 
tobacco, alcohol, you know, ultimately the sugar issue, which is the one that sort of brung me. And now the technology issue, these are the questions, is where does libertarianism end and communitarianism start when it comes to a public health issue? So that was the first reason. And then the second reason uh, I went to law school was to figure out how tobacco got away with it for 40 years. Because ultimately, this is the tobacco playbook all over again. And we should be able to use the uh, same uh, arguments and the same legal doctrines that stymied tobacco in 1994 uh, for both sugar and also now for technology. So understanding the playbook was absolutely essential. So th th those were the two reasons I went to law school. But uh, it was not to be a lawyer. Clearly, Lustig holds the tobacco and sugar industries in equally dismal regard. A dose-dependent liver toxin, that's his description. Poison. In his ideal future, a Snickers ad on a bus stop bench might be reduced to mere antique lying dusty by a poster of the Marlboro Man in Grandma's Attic. It's safe to assume also that, you know, I think you'd get this just from a cursory YouTube spree of Lustig's talks, that sugar has crossed that threshold he talks about here from personal liability to public health crisis, and that we can apply lessons learned from big tobacco to our current dilemma with big sugar. And Lustig's legal expertise in this arena really seems to inform his policy interests. Question is, is it okay to convey disinformation to get you to buy something. Ultimately, in your vernacular, that would be the crook. So I think that you should outlaw all crooks. And I think that propaganda basically needs to be vetted and curated to be determined whether or not it is, in fact, disinformation. Problem is, Supreme Court has told us that commercial speech is free speech. And you're, and basically corporations, companies, people are allowed to say anything they want because corporations are people. That's, I think, the problem. That's where we ran off the rails. John gets Robert to expand on that idea. That's actually a really good point. Um, the, the audience may not know a lot about that, about the status of a corporation as, as legally being like a person in our country. Well, now corporations, the people who work for corporations have double protection. They have the um, uh, protection of being an employee of a corporation, and they have the protection of being a citizen all at the same time. So as an example, 2008, the recession, the disaster uh, uh, subprime crisis, who went to jail? Almost no one. One person went to jail, an Egyptian national who worked for Credit Suisse, a very lower level functionary. None of the people from AIG, none of the people from Lehman, none of the people from any, uh, from Countrywide, and none of the people who basically manufactured the crisis went to jail. And the reason? They were employees of a corporation. So the game is rigged. Absolutely the game is rigged. And it is that Supreme Court decision that rigged it. So uh, there are several that have led to this usurpation by uh, corporate America over the consumer. Uh, it started with uh, uh, 
Buckley v. Vallejo uh, in 1976, moved on to uh, Virginia uh, Pharmacy versus, I've forgotten the uh, uh, name of the, uh, or, uh, the government organization, had to do with um, advertising pharmaceuticals on TV, also in 1976. Then we had Central Hudson uh, Electric versus Public Services Commission in 1980. And, uh, you know, it basically it all topped off, of course, with Citizens United hmm. uh, in 2010. Right. So basically at this point in time, no one's ever going to jail. Therefore, there is absolutely no... Um, uh, there's no shaming and there's no deterrent to basically use their bad offices for screwing people and creating uh, their own wealth at the expense of others. When a company benefits while its consumers get hurt, that's called a moral hazard. And we don't have a moral hazard in this country. We have an immoral hazard. And the reason is because it's the same companies that are benefiting from it that actually made the rules. And you know what? Just this morning, we found out that the opioid companies did exactly this and lobbied Congress to create the Marino Act, which allowed, which basically reined in the DEA so that it couldn't prosecute the opioid companies in order to be able to do this. So this just... This is brand new. I mean, this is right in our face right now. This is a an American disaster and only of our own making. And, you know, uh, it, it's why I went to law school is to understand how this occurred and ultimately what we can do about it. Right now, sadly, all of this is legal. It shouldn't be, but it is. There are, of course, a, a myriad of reasons that people lie, you know, and why businesses and marketers lie. But for these big companies with tremendous leverage over government agencies, insulated from prosecution for any negative effects of their products, one reason is clear. They lie because they can. What is the difference between marketing and propaganda? And I'd love your take on it, but uh, I've argued this uh, in my book and uh, on, you know, in, in conferences and online, etc. Here's the difference. Marketing is using information to espouse your point of view. Propaganda is using disinformation to espouse your point of view. The difference is the truth. When companies and politicians and you know virtually anybody tells the truth about what it is they're trying to sell you whether it be a product or a behavior they're marketing when they tell you a lie or falsehood certainly a knowing one then that's propaganda that's the difference well the, the problem the problem i see with that definition is that there's lots of uh examples of what people would want to call propaganda campaigns that don't necessarily have to require the appeal to false information. The, the question is then, are they propaganda or are they just persuasive marketing? Well, the term propaganda, I think, originates back in the like the 1620s with um, the Catholic Church. It set up an office 
the sacred congregation for propagating the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. The propaganda vidae was this Latin term. And the term just means to propagate as in to sow, like you're spreading seeds, you know, seeds around. So you're spreading the message. You're disseminating or promoting a particular set of ideas. And that seems to be the neutral sense of propaganda, right? But of course, in that context, it was set up as propagating the Catholic faith against the Protestant alternatives. Uprising. Right. So it then becomes um, associated with a particular kind of partisan propaganda that uh, loses its neutrality and it gets associated with uh, a pejorative sense that you're doing something to undermine or somehow deceptive. But there when you, you think about you know campaigns, for example, to convince the public, for example, to enter a war, you had the World War I campaign in the US and Britain and the World War II campaigns where the governments decided that we needed to go to war and they brought out these well, but you could only call them propaganda campaigns. How about the Gulf yeah. War? Well, well, but here's a case where you have you talk about propaganda. We never no, <laughs> no but 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 with the the distinction you're drawing is between propaganda based on disseminating false information, but the the Nazi threat wasn't necessarily a false threat, right? Nevertheless, they had to have a systematic, organized campaign of propaganda in order to shape public opinion to support this outcome. So, I mean, the, the case here is, is just that it looks like you have, uh, you could have a neutral definition of a propaganda and then within that distinguish cases where the propaganda is based on lies and deception, which is a particular kind of negative form of propaganda. But um, the category itself, I think, the people who, who study propaganda, I think, ha have a broader definition, and they tend to view it neutrally. I mean, I think my, my sense of this is that they would distinguish, say, propaganda from persuasion this way. They'd say, propaganda is a kind of attempt to influence, but it's intended to serve the interests of the propagandist and not necessarily the interests of the, of the target. Well, if I'm attempting to serve argue, both interests, you might argue that marketing does the same. Well, you could, right? So I think that's exactly this distinction between attempting to serve the interests of, say, a company or, or a business primarily versus attempting to serve multiple interests, interests of the company and the audience. That's a useful distinction. Frankly, if a company is just doing marketing to serve their own interests, the corporate interests, that's a kind of propaganda in my mind, whether they're truthful or not. When the stakeholders are aligned, that's when, um, you know, shall we say capitalism is at its best. And that's where marketing is valuable because you want to call attention to, you know, your product or your belief or your, you know, uh, your ideology that, that you think that people should be coming uh, on board uh, because, because it's good for them. Ultimately, it's got to be their decision as to whether it's good for them. When you supply misinformation so that they cannot make a rational choice as to whether it's good for them. So the let me jump in because I, I think there's a lot of valuable things that have been said in this discussion and I want to bring kind of a case to light. You know, let's say that I'm a father who has a child who is completely brainwashed out there in the culture, eating all these bad things, because that's what they've been programmed to do by all this misinformation and propaganda coming from, 
you know, the food companies and all the, you know, the political lobbying groups that have shaped policy over decades. I, as a parent, I'm having a, an effective uh, change that I'm seeking uh, to change their their attitudes, values, and beliefs around their eating. And they're my child. And obviously, I have their their best interests at heart. And, you know, will just give me the benefit of the doubt that I'm armed with the truth. Um, you know, because I, I watched, you know, uh, Robert Lustig speak on, on um, you know, FU on Amazon Prime. And <laughs> I, I paid $4 to watch his, his video. And I have a lot of data and information to support myself. But I have a, you know, 10-year-old who hasn't, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And so what I'm going to do is when he comes home from school, I'm going to sit him down. I'm going to talk to him about stuff. But then I'm going to say, let's watch this movie on Amazon Prime together. Kevin's argument would be in that moment, I'm using a piece of propaganda because the food companies would call what you're doing propaganda. I'm using a piece of propaganda with an agenda to change his thinking and instill in him some measure of fear about going along with it with the herd and poisoning his body every day with sugar. Well, so the question is, when you're a parent, you're making that conscious decision as to what the content you're exposing your child to, because presumably they're kids, they don't know better. You know, there are a lot of kids who actually know better than their parents. Okay. And, you know, there are a lot of parents who've actually been led astray and led, you know, down the primrose path and are now paying for it in terms of type 2 diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, and every other disease because they didn't know the truth. So the question is who's the keeper of the truth? I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean. Neither more, nor less. The question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, which is to be master? That's all. Who is the keeper of the truth and who do you really believe in this world? As it turns out, you know, there, this is a complicated question. And, you know, there is no truth. We thought the truth for 50 years was that saturated fat was bad, and we got rid of it because of it. That was, quote, the truth. We now know, due to work that my colleagues at UCSF and others around the world have done, is that, you know, this was a massive propaganda campaign a massive public relations campaign, but very specifically to exonerate sugar and the Sugar Association paid scientists off to create their truth. And the thing that I've learned is that there is no truth. There's my truth and there's your truth. So you could argue then if you don't have my truth, then you're propagandist. And you know what? That's how it ultimately ends up being used.
It sounds like Lustig's almost flirting with relativism here, that he's making some metaphysical claim that there is no truth, there are no objective facts. But his next statement clarifies that this was more of an epistemological claim about what sources can be trusted to promulgate the truth. In the food industry, he's saying that the traditional, the official sources simply cannot be trusted, leaving only one source on which to rely. My thing is science. I let the science tell me what's true and what's not. If it, data, I'm the data guy. Okay? I didn't come to this with a preconceived agenda. I didn't start out being a, you know, a, a zealot uh, against sugar. You know, I consumed plenty of candy bars in my day. I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I am by no means squeaky clean, you know. Uh, it's only the science that brought me to where I am today. You know, I just followed the data. Data, science. That's a noble pursuit. That's exactly what we're after in the marketplace, right? These empirical buttresses to support and, and lend credence to our claims about a product, service, or platform. And as consumers, of course, we want the same thing to use our rational faculties and avoid being persuaded by baseless emotional ploys. It gets a little trickier, though, in this politicized space that Lustig occupies, because if there is no public consensus on the truth about sugar or its health effects and, and the sugar industry, then every source is partisan to someone. What I'm arguing is that there's a part of our brain that is analytic and basically does data sifting for us. It is called the prefrontal cortex. And when your prefrontal cortex is working, you can make conscious decisions about what the truth is. When your prefrontal cortex is not working, you are basically a lizard you are running off complete intuition. And it is then that you become a zealot because you believe in something with religious fervor rather than with scientific analysis. My argument is that we have become lizards over the last 50 years. And the reason is because we have had an onslaught against our prefrontal cortex through technology, through sleep deprivation, through sugar, through processed food. Bottom line, our society has created, and, and drugs, of course, um, our society has created a dissociation between the part of our brain that makes us human, the part of our brain that makes us analytical, and the lizard part of our brain. And we are now responding and reacting in ways that are ultimately bad for us, that are hedonic. Let me give you an example. This is actually uh, something I mentioned in my book. Does unhappiness cause mortality? Do people who are unhappy die early? Yes or no? I would say that based on what I know, people who who tend to have to be striving towards a goal end up 
living longer. And so if they're dissatisfied and they don't feel like they're happy and they're striving for a goal so they can become happy, the longer they're engaged in that process, the more likely they are to live longer. That's exactly right. Good for you. That's well, good. Although my, I agree that the, uh, the intuition here is, is to go the other way and say that the happier people will be more likely to live longer, for sure. The Million Women Study in the UK asked this question directly. And it turns out that the degree of unhappiness is not correlated with mortality, longevity, or anything else for that matter. There are plenty of unhappy people in the world, and they live just as long. The thing that determines whether or not unhappiness leads to mortality is not the unhappiness. It's what you do to try to get happy. Hmm. If you engage in hedonic behaviors or hedonic chemicals in an attempt to try to override your unhappiness by substituting pleasure, i.e. tobacco, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, etc., all in an attempt to escape your unhappiness. It is those um, hedonic behaviors, all of which have uh, negative medical consequences, that leads to mortality. So it's not the unhappiness itself. It's what you do to get happy that kills you. Mm-hmm. Kevin, yeah, this, did you? This, well, this is the key to your particular thesis, right? The, the nature of the hack is this uh, systematic confusion and and a conflation between the concepts of pleasure and happiness. Correct. And um, and uh, and so you get people. The hack is to is to tell people, in order to get happy, you pursue. This thing, this which is product. in fact a dopamine-based uh, death spiral, and it's really That's pleasure, and they sell the pleasure, and they stick the label on it, and that this will make you happy. There you go. Right. That was that's the key insight to your. That's the strategic sh- change that shift. It was the nature of the hack, and of course, it, this targets the limbic system, and it's an addictive process, which demands, which increases stress and cortisol, and and uh, has tied into the the uh the other health health uh effects mental and uh, physical health effects and it is that stress and those hedonic uh chemicals and behaviors that take your prefrontal cortex offline hmm. so we we have a term well, i just want to throw this out there we have a term for this um lizard existence that you're describing and we call it poverty of consciousness what what's happened you know throughout the 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 decades is that um the people engaged in marketing have gotten really smart i mean they've gotten very artful you know with their skills about how to manipulate people to to do their will and the values system around using those that art and that craft uh, has all gone out the window and and according to you it's been legislated right out of our laws such that it's just an open season on consumers, right? It's open season to go out and use what, you know, whatever your craft will allow you to do. Lustig goes on to explain the difference between two types of claims and how they relate to your average marketing or advertising campaign. So a structure function claim basically is like vitamin D leads to strong bones or a dietary fiber 
uh, is uh, helps helps you uh, go poop. Those are structure function claims. Health claims would be um, vitamin D treats osteoporosis. You have a disease state. Okay, dietary fiber, you know, reverses metabolic syndrome. That's a disease claim. So the structure function claim doesn't say my product actually does something positive. It's just a you know, throwaway that has nothing to do with the product itself. It's just something that calls attention to the product. And it's usually in front of packaging. A health claim, you actually have to have data for. You have to actually get codification through the FDA for. So standard marketing is basically structure function. Okay. If you can act, you can actually amass the data to show that you actually are doing something positive, either for health or for society, for climate change, or for you know whatever problem you have developed devised your product for, then you should be able to get that level of proof into your marketing. You should be able to demonstrate why your marketing is truthful and why you have addressed this issue and why you should buy this product because this is in fact good for you even more than it is good for us, the company. And here's why. And you should be able to do that with data. You should be able to do that with science. If you can't, then the question is, is it because of your product or is it because of you know, your market or something else? I don't think many people would argue that striving for proof through data isn't something we should be engaging in. But the crucial word there is should, not must. When you introduce the forceful hand of government or regulation, that's where the argument that we should outlaw all crooks faces fierce resistance. So you have this tension between empathy for those who fall victim to these structure function claims or these false claims and more libertarian sensibilities that want to free up markets and deregulate industry. Because Robert Lustig frames this American disaster, this assault on the prefrontal cortex as a public health issue, he clearly sees political and, and top-down action as completely appropriate and even necessary. Everyone's going to prioritize these values a little bit differently, you know, of individual freedom and empathy for the exploited. And I think we owe it to listeners to present the opposite side of the coin at some point. But in trying to grasp Lustig's position, his field of practice and expertise is of critical importance. He's a pediatric endocrinologist with a particular interest in the destructive effects of propaganda on innocent children's health. As someone steeped in this childhood obesity problem for a 30-plus year career, it's easier to understand why he would advocate for them by any means necessary. Gatorade. 1965, patented by Dr. Robert Cade, University of Florida. The reason it was called Gatorade. 1972, the uh, uh, Florida Gators beat the Auburn Tigers in the Sugar Bowl, which at that time was the national championship. Gatorade Ironic. Made a big splash. Do you ever taste the original Stokely's Gatorade? No. Not me. I did. 
tasted like tiger piss. <laughs> it was glucose, sodium, and water. It was an oral rehydration solution, the same thing we give cholera victims in India. Okay, And it worked. It did work. I'm not saying it didn't. It just tasted terrible. And nobody bought, nobody used it, nobody bought it. The only people who would ever drink it were dehydrated athletes on the gridiron. 1992, Pepsi buys Gatorade. It says, how are we going to market this swill? what they do? Two things. Michael Jordan, high fructose corn syrup. Hmm. Now, they would argue that the high fructose corn syrup increases and repletes your plasma, your liver glycogen which is true. I don't argue that. And so you will replete your glycogen faster after a sports drink than if you drink plain old water. However, the question is, what is the downside? The downside is fatty liver disease, metabolic syndrome, all the things that I've been talking about. Does Pepsi talk about that? That's propaganda. How do I start a company that allows me to, to, to engage in transactional business with a world that is there available to me as a market? How do I do it as the winner in our, in our, uh, philosophy, the, the one who's out there doing what they believe is in the best interest that the data supports as the best interest, what we, we call a persuasive education. The, the idea is that if the data is on your side and you're promoting something that, that the data supports is, is in the best interest of a, a given population, that you don't have to hide anything. It, it really is a matter of the more that they find out about the, what you're offering, the more the lights are coming on and it's just simply they're educating themselves in a way that, that persuades them. And, and we, we understand there are some persuasive arts and we, you know, you don't want to um, use language that's not helpful. Um, you don't want to use uh, arguments that are irrelevant. You know, you want to aim things to attract, inform and, and invoke the, 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 the people that you're targeting, but you want to do it in a way that is honorable and virtuous and supported by data. What's your advice? How do you? This is very This is very difficult because most companies don't want to engage in this. Up to this point, Lustig had talked extensively about legal miscues and political frustrations. And when the conversation revolves around these structural critiques, it can be easy to feel helpless and hopeless, like the problem's just slightly out of reach. John tried three separate times to ask the question you just heard, to draw out ways that individuals can be empowered as effective change agents in this morass. And finally, we made some headway. This is a public health issue, okay? This is a public health issue, and public health issues require public health responses. All public health responses have to have personal intervention, and societal intervention. So personal intervention for, you know, say drugs of abuse, we would call rehab. Societal intervention, for lack of a better word, we would call laws. 
rehab and laws, rehab and laws. You have to work at the personal level. You have to work at the societal level. One or the other does not work. You have to do both. So absolutely, absolutely. This is like, like the at least a multi-level approach to the problem requires yeah, is bottom up to and top down stuff at the same time. Right. It has to be a multi-level approach. For tobacco, we have rehab and laws. For uh, uh, nicotine, for uh, cocaine, rehab and laws. For heroin, rehab and laws. Although the Marino Bill was basically designed to undo those laws. Right. The bottom line is you need both. There is no education alone that can solve any substance of abuse. That's why it's a substance of abuse. And there's no education alone that will ever basically make you do the golden rule. You basically build that into society. That's what the laws are, is basically to make you want to perform the golden rule. Hmm. All right, that's why they're there, is the reminder, the nudge to keep you doing it. It is why we have laws so that you have conformity amongst the populace in order to try to better society rather than take it apart, which is what we have now. So that is what society is built on, and you, you need both. For sugar, we have neither. For technology, we have neither. This is what we need to start working on. I'm an advisor to the Center for Humane Technology. This is the nonprofit that Tristan Harris, the former design ethicist at Google, set up with Roger McNamee to basically take on Silicon Valley. And, you know, this whole issue of dehumanizing the human condition, which is basically your poverty of consciousness. So there is a, you know, a, a nonprofit that is addressing this directly. We are developing a coder's code of ethics that needs to be taught right at the start, you know, in high school, in college, as people are coming up with these great ideas. Sort of like a coder's Hippocratic Oath. Exactly. Something he suggested is the uh, idea of an FDA for technology. Right. What about uh, some other simple heuristics? Like, like I kept thinking of things like uh, a marketer's version of the golden rule. Market unto, unto others as you would have them market unto you. That is, when you're thinking about crafting your marketing campaign and your product development and so on, take on the role. You have to play the game. Take on the role of the audience, of the consumer, and ask yourself, how would I like to be marketed to? That is is um, is a kind of model that uh, we can we can aspire to, um, but it seems to be so rare in the context. As I, one, I, I guess the question I have is to, is to what extent it's it's a realistic model to be uh, spread widely, or whether it'll always be kind of like an artisanal model of business practice where you have, where there's always be these small groups who are engaged in a kind of ethical marketing, ethical business, but it's just never going to be the norm. Or whether or not that's too cynical. What do you think? I don't know. Uh, I think that, you know, you're allowed to market. It's not against the law. Uh, I think that 
people have been marketing ideas, you know, for millennia, uh, you know, before they were marketing products. It's part of the human ritual. Uh, the difference is um, nowadays we're not marketing ideas or products. We're marketing untruth, you know, marketing lies. And I think that's the difference. I think that's what George Orwell was telling us. Hmm. And I think it's here. Uh, I think that's what changed. And, you know, somewhere along the way, it became not just legal to do it, but normal to do it. We have normalized this very, what I would consider an egregious behavior. You know, it's, it's a breakdown in society to some extent. And what it's, and in the process, our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that discerns truth from lies is under such assault that we can't even tell the difference anymore. If deception is really baked into the cake, no pun intended, then it seems we have a mighty task. In the counseling world, it's almost a truism, but disrupting someone's routine, someone's stasis, is a monumental challenge, nonetheless with a system or industry stasis. Even with a high schooler who's only had 14 or 15 years to develop them, habits aren't broken without a disciplined and intentional and a sustained effort. I still believe that just recognizing, just articulating the problem is probably the most critical step in denormalizing deception. But then there's communicating and broadcasting these new norms of ethical business and marketing to your community and to the public. We're trying to advocate for nurturing and, and fostering a, a moral code of ethics within the marketing industry itself, where um, we look at each other amongst ourselves, look each other in the eye and and come out of this sleep that we've been in, that we've, you know, where we disassociate what we do from our, our own sense of personal morality. You know, it's just business, right? It's just business. But that we understand that, that it's life and that we have a responsibility for, along with these two other groups, you know, consumer advocacy and people lobbying for changes to our laws, that we advocate for changes among ourselves. To make it, you know, unconscionable that, you know, if you as a peer are doing something that, that is shameful, that we don't just give you an award for having, you know, a clever ad about it, that we, we say, you know, we, you know, that's not cool. That's not good. You know, don't work for those companies that, that are doing those things. Don't support those things. In our next episode, we interview Todd Crawford. As co-founder of both Commission Junction and Impact, Todd's played a key role in bringing professionalism and accountability into the field of performance marketing. And as a result, he's been the recipient of numerous honors and awards and has really earned a place of genuine respect in the industry. It's a must-listen. For a little deeper dive into some of the concepts we talk about here, you can read the first three companion journal articles now by following the Influence Hacker Journal on Medium. It could help us get this off the ground with a five-star review and by sharing with coworkers, friends, and family. The Influence Hacker Podcast is executive produced by John Lenker and Kevin DeLaPlante. 
Our mixing and mastering engineer is Patrick Dobrynin. The producer of this podcast, as well as the writer of the narrative and original music, is yours truly, Matt O'Leary. <laughs>